Luke 18. Verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and honor your mother and father. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this. He said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today. Thank you for this word that you give to us. And Father, this young, rich ruler typifies many, O Lord, who seek who seek to be justified, who seek eternal life, but, O Lord, whose hearts are corrupted. Father God, I pray, Almighty Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts today. Help us to understand what you're teaching us in this passage. O Lord, I pray that you'd free our hearts from the grip of materialism. And I pray, Father God, that as we enter a new topic here, that you would uh, give us sanctifying grace, O Lord, that we would understand what our true treasures are and not be deceived by the treasures of this world. O Lord, give me grace, I pray, my mind, my heart, and my lips. Help me carry, help carry me along as, as uh, um, your servant, as a vessel of honor for your glory. I pray that uh, uh, I would decrease and you would increase. And may our ears and our hearts and our minds O Lord, be fully receptive to your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Today I begin a a short series. It's a brief series I'll be doing over the summer in my sporadic preaching. Um, And it is on the topic of finances and money and giving and stewardship. And um, I, I had been encouraged by others to preach through the series. I normally don't speak or like to speak on the topic of money, given how many, uh, how many people are, have been disgusted, and rightfully so, of uh, preachers who have abused the topic of giving and money to enhance and line their own pockets. And that clearly is not my intention. I believe that God will provide for his people, and I don't believe in any of that manipulation tactics. However, we are... God's people and God does teach us about money. It is a very important subject. And to avoid the topic of finances and wealth altogether would do injustice to the full counsel of God. And that is because God is very interested in how we deal with money. Well, some of you may be saying to yourselves, well, Bob, we need to hear about spiritual matters, not worldly matters. 
Let me say this. The Bible says more about money than any other subject. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there are about 2,350 verses about money. And that is more than faith or salvation. In fact, the Gospel of Luke alone, we see that Christ takes money more seriously than any other issues. His parables or his uh, direct interaction here with the rich young ruler show that Christ sees the, our understanding, our perspective, and our use or abuse of money and possessions very seriously. Author Richard Halverson says this, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index of a man's true nature. All through scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money. In essence, you cannot divorce the two of spirituality and how we handle money. The two are deeply intertwined and complement each other. How we view money and how we uh, handle money will directly affect our spiritual maturity and growth. And likewise, our spiritual maturity and growth will directly influence how we think about and how we use our finances. In fact, it is, as the man said, Halverson, an index of our spiritual character. It tells us where our heart really is. You see, money brings a lot of things in this life. There's an old saying, money can't bring happiness, but it certainly helps. Well, money does bring certain things in life. It brings security. It brings power. It brings pleasure. It brings enjoyment. And that is why, when you read the scripture, it is the number one competitor for our allegiance to God. You know, there's often the three main idols or competitors that, that, that vie for our affection, and that is gold, glory, and the girls, right? Or put in another way, right? Money or finances and wealth and all that it brings, the glory, which is the praise of men, or the pleasure of the hedonistic pleasure of having um, people that we can have relationships with. Simply said, though, Christ made no, minced no words about it. When you get down to it, you cannot serve God in money. It's either one or the other. And so the question is, what kind of perspective do we have over money? Do we see money for what it is a um, and we'll get into this later as a tool, as a resource that God provides to be used for good? Or do we make it a God in which we serve? Today's sermon deals with a man who was a servant of money. His God was money. He loved money more than he loved God. And he was someone who wanted to become a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. Now let's just remember... In the time of Christ's earthly ministry, he was exceedingly popular. Whether you believed in him or not didn't matter. Jesus of Nazareth was the most popular man who lived on the earth in the first century. Everyone knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. He healed people. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000. He taught as if no one else before or after him with, one, with authority unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so if Jesus came to town, everybody wanted to see Jesus. 
And throughout the course of his public ministry, many people would come up to him. The sick would come up to him, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, people looking for healing, people looking for forgiveness. But also there were a lot of religious people who sought after him. A lot of the Pharisees and a lot of the the scribes. And they, they sought to challenge him and they thought they were clever. And they would ask him questions to pick his brain to see how he would respond. Many seeking to justify themselves or to pat themselves on the back to remind, to, so that they can get affirmation of how religious they were. And that is the rich young ruler. He's called the rich young ruler for several reasons. He's a young man, and the Bible tells us that, but he's also a ruler. Uh, many commentators believe that he was probably a ruler of the local synagogue. And so with that said, he would have had great influence in the community, would have had great respect in the community. This is a man who knew the scripture. This is a man who was outwardly righteous. This was a man who uh, had a lot of power uh, in terms of uh, discussing or organizing or what goes on in the synagogue, which was the center of Jewish life. He was also wealthy. In fact, the scripture says he was extremely wealthy. Now, in that time, wealth was uh, accounted by how much land you owned. So it was not just the possession of, uh, of gold coins or silver coins or shekels, but it was the possession of land where one's wealth was really counted. So this was a man who had a lot of property. He was young. He had the world at his beck and call. He was influential in the community, and he sees Jesus. Mark's account tells us that he dropped to his knees when he seen Jesus. Luke is more simple, just gets to the point. Mark gives a little more detail. He drops to his knees before Jesus and asks the simple question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I just want to stop there for a minute because he's asking a very good question, isn't it? the most important question any human being could ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's getting down to the most important thing. What what must I do to gain access to everlasting life, to be with God, so that when I die, I may find my place with God, that I may not die and be left in Sheol, or as the Jews understand, or as we understand, hell, a place of the damned, forgotten. He wanted to make sure that his eternal soul was secure. You see, that's really at the core of every person's greatest need, isn't it? You could achieve all the wealth in the world and all the success, but there's something stirring inside every human being. What will happen to me when I die? You see, we could plan for different tragedies in life, right? You know, I, I could buy house insurance and insure my home so that if there is a storm or there's a fire, my home is protected and I'll be reimbursed. I, I can prepare for a tragedy for my car with car insurance. I can get life insurance. If I die prematurely, my wife and children will become millionaires. There's a lot you could do. You could plan and insure for certain tragedies in life, but there's one tragedy you cannot plan and insure for, and that is dying and going to hell. And so this man, a religious man who knows the scripture, wants to know, what must I do? He knows that Jesus 
is from God, like Nicodemus. He, he knows that Jesus is sent by God. He performs miracles. He speaks the truth. And so he wants to get down to the basis of what is, what must I do to get to heaven? Now, now here's the big problem here. The big problem is what he asks. What must I do? See, the reality is there's nothing you can do. Obtaining eternal life is not about what you or I do. It's about what is done by another. And that's exactly what Christ is teaching him here. And so the Lord answers him. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now that's a puzzling scripture. Many commentators and scholars have debated that. It sounds as if Jesus is denying his deity. He's saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good, and therefore, because I'm not God, I'm not good. That would seem to be the superficial reading of it, and many have made the mistake of reading it that way. But I think there's more to it than that. Number one, at this point in Jesus' public ministry, he has not publicly disclosed himself as the Son of God. In fact, he has told people who have discovered it not to tell anyone. So in Matthew 16, 20, for instance, after Jesus, when he says, who do men say that I am? And he has them in private. And Peter makes the great confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven, praise God, Simon Peter understands who Jesus really is now. He's not just the promised Messiah, but he's the son of God in the flesh. What does Jesus say immediately after that? After all the disciples rejoice, he, does, he says, go out and tell everybody now that I'm the son of God. No, it's the exact opposite. He says in Matthew 16, 20, he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus, in healing the demoniac, when he went to tell everybody that Jesus is the son of God, he forbade him, tell no one that I am the son of God. See, it wasn't time to disclose his deity. He had a mission. It wouldn't be till the resurrection that he would reveal his deity in his fullness. But there's another reason here. It's because he's addressing the heart of this young man. When you really look at the big picture here, the young man is shallow, he's superficial. He's not saying good teacher because he really believes Jesus is good. He's saying good teacher because he wants to embellish his address to Jesus. He wants to curry favor with him and say nice things so that he'll say nice things back. Isn't that how human beings are? Me and Paul always laugh about this. We, there's a corrupt man who keeps sending us emails from India uh, who is a corrupt missionary who we've had problems with in the past and every time we receive an email from him and, and another corrupt missionary also from Philippines and, and, and they, you know how they address this dearest, most beloved, great and wonderful Pastor Paul and Pastor Bob. As soon as we read, they're like, oh, good grief. You know where this is going. You know the embellishment. You know their hearts are full of, you know, full of poison, right? Bitterness and gall. Like Simon Magus, they, they, their love is for money. They're corrupt and they're greeny. And in the same fashion, this young man is saying, good teacher, because he's trying to curry favor. He wants to get the affirmation he's looking for 
from Christ. And so what Jesus is really doing is addressing his heart by saying there is no one good but God because this man ultimately believes that he is good. And he wants Jesus to affirm his goodness. And so he says, listen, no one is good but God. To make him realize something, you're not going to get the affirmation out of you. There is only one who's good, and that's God. And everyone falls short of that. What he wants to do is remind the man of the utter inability of man to do right and good. Look at Psalm 14 for a moment. Psalm 14 addresses this very thing of total depravity. In Psalm 14, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who are under who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this same quote is taken into Romans chapter 3, verse 11. It's God's assessment of the human condition. Original sin has destroyed all of us. We are all utterly sinful and contemptible in God's sight. No one is good but God alone. And what does Jesus do then to further break him down? He points him to the Ten Commandments. You see, if you want to understand what goodness is, then look to the Ten Commandments. Why? Because if God is the only one who who is good, what do the Ten Commandments do? The Ten Commandments reflect the character of God. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are not just a moral code to govern society, but it reflects the righteous and holy character of God. If you are able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, then you're like God. That's the standard. And so God sets the standard. Here's the standard. It's the Ten Commandments. And if you keep the Ten Commandments, you shall live, he says to Israel. That's eternal life. But the reality is no one can keep the commandments. No, not even one. This is why when we evangelize, we use the law. Because the law shows us that we're sinners. The law shows us that we're not good. The law shows us that we fail to meet the holy standard of what God requires of man. It's interesting because Christ only uses five of the Ten Commandments. And they're out of order. I think there's reasons for this. He doesn't deal with the first four of the Decalogue that deal with man's relationship to God. Because if the assumption here is this rich young ruler, leader of the synagogue, is already a believer in God. The real issue is how does he deal with his fellow man? That gets to the core of issue. The other commandment left out is covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. Well, let's put two and two together. Here's a rich young ruler living in the midst of people of abject poverty. Does he care about them? Does he seek to help the poor? Or does he ride around on his horse and enjoy his life while ignoring the desperate need of his brothers and sisters around him? Ah, oh, maybe the true thing is that, that he is a covetous man. Colossians 3.5 tells us that covetousness is the sin of idolatry. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's narrowing down the commandments 
He's tailoring them specifically for this young man to help him see his own desperate need. The man's arrogant. He responds, oh, I've kept the law perfectly since my youth. Clearly, he is blinded by his pride. See, the real issue was what was the center of his life? And as it would turn out, it was money. He said, Jesus says, there's one thing you have left. Sell everything you have. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you will have true treasures. Then you will have true treasures and you will follow me. Come, follow me. And he invites him. Come be my disciple. It says, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. At the core of it, the rich young ruler's sin was that he was an idolater. He didn't love God. He didn't love God. He loved money. He would rather go to hell than to give up his riches because his treasure was in this world. His treasure was not in eternity. Christ exposed him and gave him a chance, but he walked away. I want to think, I want you to think about that for a minute. Here was a man who actually saw Christ in the flesh. One generation in all of human history was alive during the public ministry of Christ. He interacted with God in the flesh and had an opportunity right there and right then to give his life and become one of the disciples. But he chose instead to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We hear nothing more of this man. He would die and he'd be lost forever. He had a good life. He had a lot of money. He enjoyed it. But where is he today? He's a bag of bones in some grave in Israel. And his soul is tormented forever. What does this tell us about the danger and the deception that we can have with a wrong perspective of money and wealth. The Lord warned us in Matthew 6.22, and this is my first application point to take away from this, is that we need a right perspective of money. A wrong perspective will kill us. Matthew 6.22, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How one handles wealth and money and possessions will be determined by whether or not he or she has a good eye or a bad eye. What does that mean? It means do you have a good perspective or a bad perspective? When we talk about perspective, we talk about What vantage point you are viewing things from? Do you have a view of money and wealth that's related to eternity? Or do you view money as it relates merely to earth and earthly pleasures? Jesus is stressing the importance that we must have a proper perspective. The rich young ruler had a poor perspective. He couldn't let go because he thought that's all that would matter in life. 
Light in the body where it speaks of spiritual life, it speaks of eternal life, it speaks of illumination and it gives life. Darkness brings death. It kills. When you have the wrong view, it'll kill you. What are we talking about when we talk about money? I have a $20 bill in my hand. See that? Nice, crisp $20 bill. They keep changing them. The faces get bigger. I remember when they were smaller. All it is is a piece of paper. You know that, right? It's actually made out of cotton. It's, it's spun out of cotton. It's actually made of cloth. So it's not paper. It's not papyri. It, it's actually cloth. But there's nothing valuable about this piece of paper. It's worth half a cent in terms of the cost of the cotton used to make it. What makes it valuable is not the paper it's printed on, it's the assigned value that the currency system gives it. If the dollar collapses, then the dollar's worthless, isn't it? You can have old currency from the Confederate States of America, old Confederate dollars. What good is it? It might be a collector's item, but it has no value because it's no longer a currency in circulation. I have money from Canada. It's absolutely worthless here in America because it's not valuable in this context. You know, when we go back to the ancient world, people used bartering to make transactions. So if I was a farmer and I may have had milk and, and you were a fur trapper, we would trade. There was an assigned value to the fur and assigned value to the milk. We made a trade and that was how things worked. And as people traveled more, they needed currency. And so they would use gold and silver and assign value to it so that they could uh, obtain those items and buy and sell. And that's how we get to the economy of where we are today. The point is this. Why am I saying this? We place certain values on goods and services. Computers have an assigned value. You can go into Apple Computer Store right now and buy a computer, a new MacBook, for $1,600. That's what the assigned value of it is. There's an assigned value for your employment. If you have a job making $60,000 a year, it means that the company who hires you agrees that your value is worth $60,000 a year for your service and will pay you incrementally for it. Your service has a value. Pay attention. Because money has no inherent value but only assigned value, it is not wealth. It only symbolizes wealth. What money is, is a tool. Because it's a tool, there are essentially two ways a person could use it. It's like a hammer. You can use a hammer to build a house, or you can use a hammer to murder someone. It's the person wielding the hammer that makes the difference. So it is with money. A person can use money as a tool. You can use it to help your neighbor. You can use it to serve others. You can use it to send a missionary to another continent. You can use it to feed and clothe and provide shelter for your family, for the poor. You can use it to send Bibles to foreign countries, to build churches, etc. Or you can use money to purchase drugs. You can use money to purchase alcohol. You could use money to purchase prostitutes. You could use money to give bribes to judges to get your way. You can use money to fund terrorism. 
Or you could use money to spend selfishly on your hedonistic pleasures for the rest of your life. You get what I'm trying to get here? Money is a tool. And how you use it can either bring great potential blessing or it can bring harm to others or yourself. It could be used to build up humanity or oppress humanity. The problem isn't money itself. Money is an idea. It's who possesses it and it's our hearts that matter. Being rich or poor is not the issue. The issue is what's in your heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The point is this. God created us to worship and serve him alone. He's God. Money is a resource and tool that is used to serve God and to serve others. What's happened is People inverse it. They worship and serve money. They make money their God and they use people as tools to get what they want. You either serve God or you serve money. You either use money as a tool or you use people. And if you really want to get down to it, there are people who use God as a tool. They use God as a tool as as a means of achieving greater wealth. I claim this new car in the name of Jesus. I claim my million dollars in the name of Jesus. Who do you think God is? Your genie in a bottle? God is your tool? This brings me to the second application. Not only... Is our money, our view of money could be wrong. But also, there are two attitudes about money that could be wrong. Two extreme attitudes. And I just, I label them as the poverty ethic and the prosperity ethic. Well, what are they? Well, there's, these are two equally opposite views in Christianity that are both equally wrong and are not biblical. First is the poverty ethic. The basic premise of this view is that if you're poor, it makes you more spiritual. The view is that money and wealth are inherently evil, so therefore Christians should give up everything they have and we should all live in poverty. That would be a misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. They literally take that statement literally and say, this is, if you want to be a Christian, you need to sell everything you have and be poor. Jesus was dealing with this man very specifically. There were many people who Jesus did not call to poverty. Abraham had great wealth. Jesus didn't say, Abraham, or God didn't say, Abraham, give up all you have and be poor, right? Uh, Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament was a wealthy man. He was a believer and follower of Christ. Jesus didn't say, give up everything you have to the poor and follow me. Uh, Barnabas was a very wealthy man in the New Testament. Jesus didn't say, give up everything you have and follow me. He didn't have to because their hearts were anchored in the truth. They weren't a slave to money. And so based on this poverty ethic, it worked itself out in church history where people just take vows of poverty. St. Francis of Assisi is the 
is the one who probably makes this the most popular, and the Franciscans uh, um, who follow in his footsteps do the same thing. Francis of Assisi was a wealthy man, and he gave everything away and took an oath of poverty. I'm not sure that I would want to follow his example as the same man who rolled around in thorn bushes to injure himself to keep himself from falling into the sin of lust. The Franciscans devote themselves to avoiding every possession and pleasure in life. They don't even touch money. They consider it a virtue to beg for bread as a way of gaining special favor with God. There is nothing biblical about this view. Absolutely nothing. First of all, it's a wrong understanding, as I said, of what Jesus said. Secondly, let me make one thing clear. There is nothing spiritual or virtuous about being poor. When you're poor... Uh, or, or, you know, what you have to do is you're always going to be a burden on someone else. When you're poor, you have to depend on someone else to take care of you. Whether it's the government, whether it's the church, whether it's your family, the poor person is always a burden on someone else. That's why it says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. There were people in the church of Thessalonica who weren't working and they thought it was spiritual to be poor and, and, and yet they were feeding off of the hard work of others. And Paul says, listen, if you won't work and contribute to the overall community of the church, then you have no right to eat. The Bible is very clear that God calls us all to a vocation and we're to use the gifts and talents God has given us and to work hard and to glorify God in our labors. The work is unto the Lord. Ephesians 4, 28 says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's the exact opposite. God doesn't call us to be poor and burden others, but he calls us to, to work hard, to create wealth, and alleviate the poverty of others. Not contribute to it. How else could the church be? support buildings and ministries and, and, and send missionaries around the world and print Bibles. It requires Christians to work, to labor, and to give a portion of their income to the work of God. And so that is the poverty ethic. Unfortunately, the poverty ethic also leads to spiritual pride. Usually those who believe in the poverty ethic take great pride in how they live and and they judge everyone else by that standard. And so our standard of living, Randy Alcorn says, can become a yardstick by which we measure others. We may see others as unspiritual if they own a house or we don't. Or if our house, their house is bigger and ours is not. Or their car is newer and ours is old. It's amazing how deceitful the human heart can be. I've seen people brag about how poor they are. They never go on vacation. They never buy clothes. They never go out for dinner. It becomes a form of bragging rights. Look how spiritual I am. There's nothing spiritual about it. God calls us each to our own condition to live before him. Secondly is the prosperity ethic, which goes hand in hand with materialism. Materialism is a philosophical worldview. What is materialism? Materialism is basically a secular, atheistic worldview. It's the idea that nothing exists in the universe but that which is made out of matter, that which is material. All right? So the Darwinists, the Marxists, the, 
all in general have a worldview that it doesn't matter. The spiritual realm doesn't matter. Only the physical realm matters because that's all that exists. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Materialism in its secondary meaning then means that if this is your worldview, that all that really matters is you, 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 know, you end up you know, dying with the most toys. So I, I shared the gospel with a family friend of mine years ago and he didn't believe. He, he told me, I believe that when you die, you go in the grave and that's it. You're done. Your life is over. And because he believed that, he told me that his life ethic, his belief was to accumulate as many possessions and wealth as possible because after all, I could only enjoy it for a little while and then I'm going to die. That makes sense. If you're a materialist, there is no other way to live. It'd be stupid to live poor if you're a, uh, if, if you're a materialist. If you don't believe in God in the afterlife, you might as well steal and cheat and do whatever and live, live the good life because you're going to die. The rich young ruler was a materialist. We live in a society full of materialists. People work and live just for increasing their wealth, goods, and possessions. If you think about it, people identify themselves by their jobs, what cars we drive, what neighborhood you live in, what clothes you wear. It's when doctors no longer practice for the good of the people, but because of for money. Or corporations sell products they know are bad for people. Why? Because of the money. When our lives are controlled and characterized by material gain, this is materialism. And as an alf shooteth out, we get the prosperity ethic or the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is nothing more than spiritualized materialism. Whereas the poverty ethic says you're spiritual, your rate of spirituality is based on how little you have. The prosperity ethic says, well, you must be favored by God if you have a lot. And so the more you have, that means the more godly, the more spiritual, the more holy you are. Nothing could be further from the truth. So prosperity theology is really materialism cloaked in spirituality. It's the justification of materialistic living by twisting scriptures. And it's the greatest enemy of the gospel in the 21st century. In fact, I think, believe today, the greatest enemy, the greatest false gospel that we confront is the prosperity gospel. It's an affront to everything the Bible teaches, and it is popular, it is widespread, not just here in America, but all throughout the world. And you know where the prosperity gospel thrives the most? Among poor people. Which tells you something, that, that poor people are just as covetous as rich people. They want the wealth and prosperity that the wealth have, and the, and the prosperity teacher exploits that. And they use it to their advantage. So they drive around in Rolls Royces and flying private jets while the poor are crushed and squandered. It's oppression of the ugliest kind. Both views are wrong because both views make more of material wealth than God does. You know what the key to all of this is? Contentment. The Bible calls us to be content no matter where we are in life. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked we come out of our mother's womb. Naked we leave this world. We have to understand that whatever we have in life, and some are going to have more than you, and some are going to have less than you. Don't look at what others have. Be content for where God has you. 
There are many people who are driven by jealousy. They see others who have more and they're driven by mad jealousy. That ought not to be in the Christian church. We're to be happy and rejoice for those who have more. And for those who have less, we should be able to meet their needs and help them. Philippians 4 says this in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned which you have no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love that because Paul knew both worlds. He knew what it was to live well off. He was a Pharisee. He probably had a very luxurious lifestyle. And he knew what it was to have very little and be in jail. And he found I could go either way. I'm content. Why? Because my treasure is Christ. I have a lot, praise God. If I have a little, praise God. I'm content either way. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Proverbs 38 through 9 says this, Remove from me far falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This should be our spirit. We seek riches. Many people, it says in 1 Timothy 6, have pierced themselves with many pangs and have fallen away from the faith. And those who have less, who, who sit there in envy and jealousy, straining and coveting what they don't have, wishing they had it, and feeling angry that others have it and they don't, they ruin their souls too. Either way is self-destructive. But being content... Let me conclude by saying this. Jesus said to the rich young ruler in the end, he said to him, sell everything you have and you will have treasure in heaven. You see, he understood what the real treasure was. Jesus says in Matthew 6, store up treasures, not in this world where the moth eats and the rust destroys and the thief steals, but treasure in heaven. The rich young ruler couldn't see it. He could only see the here and now. He couldn't see the big picture. Because he was blind, he fell away. You've probably heard this illustration before. Think of your, you ever go to the beach? How many people have ever been to a beach? Okay. How many people have ever been to the desert? Anybody here? Brother Naveen, you've been to the desert? You've been to the Sahara? Okay, not Sahara. Somewhere in India. You've been to a desert in India. Miles and miles and miles of sand. All right, here's perspective for you. Your life is like a grain of sand. Think of that. One little minuscule grain of sand. That's your life in this world. That desert overflowing with billions of grains of sands, that's eternity. What matters more, your life here or there? What matters more? What's more valuable? You know, you're young, you don't think that way because you're blind to your youth. By your youth, as you get older, people begin to realize it more. Your treasure rests not in this world. What you have can be taken away tomorrow. True treasure is in heaven with Christ. 
Look with me in Luke chapter 19, one chapter later. Because there was an, a man who was very different from the rich young ruler. In chapter 19, verse 1, we read this. It says this, And he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Another rich man in the fold here. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was a he was small in stature. He was a short little guy. So he ran on ahead and climbed up on a sycamore tree to see him, and he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. People didn't like tax collectors that day. And he had gone into to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Right prior to this, Jesus says it's, in, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples said, who will be saved? He said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And shortly later, another rich man pops up. And God does a work of grace in his heart. And his eyes behold real treasure. And all of a sudden, he lets go of the treasures of this world. He's ready to let it go. He says, I'm giving half of everything I have to the poor. And, and, if, and if I cheated anyone, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. His attitude about wealth and money and possessions had been sanctified. Oh, that we would learn this. I know this piggyback sort of on our Bible study from Wednesday. <laughs> and I'll have a couple of more sermons on this topic in the, over the summer. But I tell you, if we can learn this, we will be so much happier. We will find that we'll grow more in the Lord. And another factor to consider, all the talk now is in the coming year, there's going to be a big economic recession. There's going to be pain ahead. But if our hearts are in the right place and we become good stewards of the resources God has given us, we can ride out the wave of any recession. Because ultimately, our true treasure is in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for this day. Thank you for thy word, which is eternal, which is true and powerful. And thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the, the point here, Lord, that this man thought he could earn salvation by good works. And you showed him, O oh Lord, that nothing, there is nothing we can do, and we all are sinners. It's not what we have done, but what you have done, Jesus. You died on the cross. You bore our, the wrath for us. You took our shame, our guilt. You took our covetousness. You took our greed. You took our jealousy. You took our envy. You took it all on the cross and you bore it, O oh Lord. And through your stripes, we are healed. Thank you for the great forgiveness we have. Thank you for eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a sanctified view of money. In Christ's name, amen.